Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. So we are continuing our teaching series called We Believe, and we're talking about some of the basics of the Christian faith. Today we're going to talk about one of the best topics of them all, and that is salvation. Or, you know, again, the theologians, they're not, they're not happy just using the basic terms like, like we do. They always got to come up with the fancy words. So, if you've ever heard of the word soteriology, you have heard about the theology dealing with salvation. Soteriology, S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Soteriology. That's basically the study of salvation, the theology and doctrine of salvation. I will tell you that soteriology is a big big deal to God. It is a huge thing to God when we start talking about salvation. Why? Because God wants everybody to be saved. And if God wants everybody to be saved, then that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Let's look at the scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2. God our Savior desires, by the way, look at that. God is even described as our Savior, desires for all people to be saved. Not some, not certain people, not certain people from different places, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God wanted everyone to be saved so much, he sent Jesus to die for them. That, that's incredible. Now, when we start talking about salvation, it's important to understand that there's, in, in, our, in our terminology this morning, there's four things you need to know about salvation, okay? I hope you have your little note sheet there, or you've got one of the digital uh, deals where you can take notes on that, but this is the first thing you need to see, four things you should know about salvation. Now, whenever we start talking about salvation, whenever we start talking about soteriology, there tends to be two theological schools of thought that emerge among most Bible-teaching churches. Okay, and those two schools are typically described as either Calvinism or Arminianism. Okay, I know that, again, we're kind of throwing out the fancy words this morning. Calvinism or Arminianism. Pastor Josh touched on these briefly last week in his tremendous message on the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Calvinists, sometimes it's referred to as Reformed theology, tends to focus on the absolute sovereignty of God over every detail of life that takes place in the world. Uh, again, off the top of my head, Ephesians 1 verse 11, God works all things according to the counsel or the purpose of His will. And that includes evil to, to a large degree. Uh, a Calvinist or a Reformed theologian would tend to minimize human freedom or agency as a part of this, of this process. It's pretty much entirely a work of God. Okay? An Arminian, and, and, and sometimes this falls under Wesleyanism, uh, Arminianism named after Jacob Arminius, a 16th century reformer, Calvinism named after John Calvin, a 16th century reformer, Wesleyanism named after John Wesley, uh, an 18th century uh, evangelist who, who ultimately founded the Methodist uh, church. Uh, Arminianism or Wesleyanism tends to have a much bigger emphasis on human freedom, human agency, 
and, and, and those types of things. And, 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 and to that regard, it, it, it minimizes, it, it doesn't toss out the sovereignty of God, but it certainly uh, has, a, has a, a more minimal priority on that uh, than the absolute sovereignty of God where God is, is, is basically arranging every little thing that takes place on the earth. You say, okay, Pastor Phil, what are you? Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Well, I'm neither, okay? And, and I guess as a pastor, I, I have the right to say that I'm neither. Here's why. Because when someone comes to me and said, Pastor, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? I'll say, I'm neither because that's a false dichotomy. Because in my opinion, both camps do not take into consideration the full scope of the Scripture. Both want to emphasize this or this or, or their own you know, individual agendas. But I will tell you, I'm not interested this morning in asking, what does John Calvin say? I'm not interested in asking, what does Jacob Arminius say or John Wesley say? At Crossgate Church, we ask, what does the Bible say? So before you get too tied up with one system or another, make sure you step back and ask the question, what does the Bible say? So I, I'm just going to make a deal with you this morning, church. I'm not going to share with you anything that I don't see in the Bible. Are, are, are y'all cool with that? All right, because that, that's where we're headed this morning. If you don't want to be on that train, you might not want to be on that train, okay? But I'm going to ask the question this morning, what does the Bible say? Four things you should know about salvation. Here's the first thing. Number one, fill in the blank. Salvation begins with God's gracious election. Salvation begins with God's gracious election. Ephesians chapter 1, look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us through adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. Okay? Very plain. What does this passage say? It says that before God ever created anything, he had already ordained the plan of salvation, he had already chosen the man of salvation, who's Jesus Christ, the, 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 uh, God the Son. And he also looked into the future. And he said, this person and this person and this person and this person has come to faith in Jesus Christ. You say, on what basis, Pastor? Well, obviously we know it's not good works, right? Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, we're not saved by good works. It's not like God said, well, that person, Mother Teresa, yeah, she's in. Billy Graham, yeah, she's in. Uh, but... But that dude over there who's nothing but an alcoholic and a drug addict, ain't no way he's coming in. That's not what the Bible says. It's not based on good works. Okay, well, if it's not based on good works, what's it based on? All right, well, again, we're, we're going to kind of interact with these two schools of thought here because we're, we're very familiar with, with the outcomes of both uh, just from, you know, cultural things, Christ, church, church background, so forth. So a Calvinist would say God's election is unconditional. Unconditional election is basically where God, where God said, this person, this person, this person, based entirely upon his mercy, his sovereignty, his goodness, nothing to do whatsoever with what would ever take place in that person's life. To include faith. Okay, we'll unpack that more in just a moment. That's unconditional election. It's not based on anything that would take place in that person's life. An Arminian would say this. Every single person has absolute freedom to choose one way or the other, whatever they're going to do, 
and, uh, and, and to, to, to a large degree, people are autonomous and that they can choose God or they can totally reject Him. Whichever they want to do, it's totally on them. Okay? So, the question is, and, and by the way, there is a degree in the Scripture of what we call foreknowledge. Okay? You can write Romans 8 down. I don't have this in the notes. You can write Romans 8. We covered this over the summer. 1 Peter 1, talking about the foreknowledge of God. Okay? Now, the truth is, again, I, I, I'm neither. Okay? The, the, the truth is that God is absolutely sovereign. If he was not absolutely sovereign, he wouldn't be God. Okay? He would not be God. And yet at the same time, we see God taking the decisions that people make very, very seriously. If he didn't, there would be no such thing as moral accountability, and there would certainly be no relational value to our, to our faith in God. We'd just be robots. And yet at the same time, God in his sovereignty, his role is simply not reduced to rubber stamping whatever we decide. Okay. Here, here, here's the thing to understand, folks. We're talking about two truths in tension here. Uh, Ken Keithley, who wrote the chapter on salvation in the book a Theology for the Church, one of the resources I've recommended to you, says this. Scripture presents election and human freedom as twin truths in tension. The reason why Calvinism and Arminianism both have compelling arguments is because the Bible repeatedly presents divine and human choice side by side as parallel truths. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, described it in these terms. Donald Gray Barnhouse said that on the gates of heaven, on the outside of the gates, so here we are coming to heaven, and on the outside of the gates it says, whosoever will may come. On the inside of the gates, as God looks out across this vast multitude coming to him, it says, chosen for the foundation of the world. You say, Pastor Phil, I need a better explanation. I don't have one. Because sometimes you've got to trust that, that in, the, in the Scripture, God has revealed to us everything that we need to follow him. Right? You, you can't just throw out human responsibility and have it completely gobbled up in God's sovereignty. On the other hand, you, you can't dismiss God's sovereignty and say, I'll do whatever I want to do, period, exclamation point. doesn't work that way. That's why I find myself in the middle and saying, you know what, God has not fully explained it, and, and, and we, don't, we don't know it all until we get to heaven. Now, here's the second thing. The second thing is this, that you need to know about salvation. Salvation calls for a faith response. We see this all over the Bible. I mean, this is a no-brainer. Salvation calls for a faith response from each and every one of us. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? That's the most important decision you'll ever answer. Mark chapter 1, Jesus calls for a faith response. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul the apostle, the apostolic call for faith in Acts 17. Look at this. God commands all people everywhere to repent and turn to him. Now again, let's unpack this in terms of these, these popular schools of thought. Uh, your, your, your Calvinist, your Reformed theologian would say that because of the depravity of the human heart, we don't even have the capacity to respond in faith. We're so dead in our sin, we can't possibly even respond. It's God who gives us faith to respond. 
right? So in many ways, it's not even our faith in a sense. We're just, we're, we're responding because God has prompted us to respond. An Arminian would say, you know what? Every single person is completely autonomous to respond or not respond. And you say, boy, I like the sound of that, but be careful because I'm going to explain the other side of that in a few minutes, okay? Again, you, you have these two schools of thought, and, and so the reason why the, the, the depraved person under the Arminian and, and, and Wesleyan perspective is able to respond is because God gives everybody a certain amount of what's called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. You can write down Titus 2.11 uh, as, 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 as part of that uh, you know, reference when, when people talk about this prevenient grace that, that, that allows us to respond even though we are depraved people. Okay, again, what, 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 what's the truth here, Pastor? Where, get, just help us to understand this. Okay, again, God is absolutely sovereign, and yet he takes our decisions very seriously. God, God gives us the opportunity to respond in our own volition. And I'll tell you this, friends, if, if, we, if we don't have some volition, listen to what I'm saying here, if we as human beings don't have some volitional skin in the game, then Deuteronomy 30 is just an illusion. You say, Deuteronomy 30, what does that say? Deuteronomy 30 is God's grand pronouncement to the people of Israel that if you follow me and you're faithful and obedient to me, I will bless you. But if you, if you disobey and you're faithless and you sin and you embrace sin, I will curse you. I will tell you, if we don't have volitional skin in the game, that entire proposition is an illusion. Okay? It, it, is not, it, it is not legitimate. And on top of that, John 3.16 is a farce. Okay? Again, I'm talking about this, this, this area between the sovereignty of God and, and human responsibility. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That is a farce if we do not have some legitimate volitional skin in the game. I hope you understand what I'm saying here this morning. Okay. Because the gospel and salvation calls for a faith response. From every single one of us. God, we saw the scripture already. God desires for everybody to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You've got to answer that question this morning. What will I do with Jesus Christ? What will I do with Jesus Christ? As you look at the gates of heaven and it says, whosoever will may come. Here's the third thing. Third thing is this. Salvation regenerates those who believe. Titus chapter 3 talks about regeneration. Look at this, Titus 3. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, which is what we said a moment ago, right? God didn't elect anybody based on their good deeds. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You say, Pastor, what's regeneration? Regeneration is the, is the awesome, powerful, 
transformational effect that salvation has on every single person who follows Christ, who receives Jesus, and, and the forgiveness of sin and a brand new life. You're regenerated, right? You're regenerated. Uh, now, the word is not used, but the same concept is found in John chapter 3. Look at this. Hey, this is where Jesus said, you must be born again. John chapter 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, okay, if you're born of water, that means you're born physically, you're born of the Spirit, you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you're, you're reborn spiritually, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Same concept, regeneration. So here's the practical question, okay? What comes first? Regeneration or faith, right? When, when, when you personally make a faith response to Jesus, what comes first? Okay, let's unpack this along these lines. The, the Reformed theologian, the Calvinist, would say that regeneration precedes faith because you can't even respond to God in faith unless you've first been regenerated and basically saved in a sense, right? To, regeneration allows you to do that. Uh, gospel Coalition, which I love. In many ways, I love the Gospel Coalition. Uh, lots of wonderful, wonderful articles. But this is, this is how they describe the order. Regeneration is the sovereign work of God through the Holy Spirit, uh, granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead so that, now watch, so that they are now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. That's about the simplest explanation that I can find from a reform perspective on, on how regeneration precedes faith and repentance and, and, and all of that. Okay? Obviously, an Arminian would, would, would say otherwise. An Arminian or a Wesleyan would say that, that, that because of God's grace, God's prevenient grace, which allows us to respond to God, we respond to God, and then we are regenerated. Okay? Let, me, let me just say this real quick, y'all. Um, Several things that I'm talking about this morning, okay, would, would definitely fall under what I call secondary theological doctrinal truths, okay? So you, you, remember the paradigm we talked about at the beginning of the, the series? Unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and charity in all things. I, I would just say, if, if, if you don't agree with every little thing I'm saying this morning, that's okay, all right? I'm trying to give you a perspective out there that, that, there, that there are multiple perspectives in the body of Christ. Uh, I, I can have fellowship with a, with a Calvinist, an Arminian, a Wesleyan. It doesn't matter because we all believe Jesus Christ died for our sins and he is Lord, okay? But at the same time, it's important for us to understand some of the finer points uh, that, that are out there because we have to come to conclusions of our own. Now, what does the Bible say? Look at this. Here's a verse from Acts chapter 13. Two verses, actually. Let it be known that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All right? Next. And this is very clear. Acts 16. The man asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, there's some nuances there that if we truly wanted to split theological hairs, we would be here all day. But the fact is, there are multiple places in the Bible that seem to suggest that there's a faith response that leads to regeneration, the transformative power of God upon a person's life. 
Here's the fourth thing you need to know about salvation. Salvation endures forever. Salvation endures forever. You know, when someone trusts Christ and they're saved and and they become a born-again follower of Jesus, the question is this, are they saved forever? Is it possible to lose your salvation, to somehow fall out of that? Let's talk about that for a minute. Hugely practical, hugely practical. Again, Calvinists would say salvation is ultimately a work of God. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Even faith is a work in a sense. Even your faith was given to you by God. Therefore, because there was nothing that you did or even could possibly do to be saved, you can't do anything to lose it because it's not on you, right? An Arminian, on the other hand, a Wesleyan, if, if pressed, and some are much more adamant about it than others, would say, well, you know what? Here's the thing. You freely, of your own free will, uh, your free agency chose to be saved, guess what? You can unchoose to be saved too. Either through disbelief, either through renouncing your faith in Jesus, or through repeated sin and all the rest, you can lose your salvation. See, that, that's, that's why you have to be careful because for, for many people, the idea of this, this, this absolute free will and human agency, boy, it sounds good until you realize if it's you and not God, you could lose it just as easily as you got it, okay? What, what does the Bible say? Again, I don't care what John Calvin says. I don't care what Jacob Arminius or John Wesley says. Let's listen to the Bible. Or better yet, let's listen to Jesus. How about that? Let's listen to Jesus. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's pretty specific. But let's look back at Ephesians 1 again. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. That's the guarantee, y'all. Everybody said, guarantee. That's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's one of the biggest ironies in Christianity. Within the Christian traditions, you you tend to find folks within the Arminian and Wesleyan camp who make a really big deal about the Holy Spirit. Your Pentecostal brothers and sisters come from this they're definitely not over here they're they're from this school of 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 christianity okay here's the biggest irony the same people that make such a big deal about the holy spirit say you can lose your salvation you can't have it both ways friends as i understand the scripture i mean i just read to you from the bible okay and i will tell you this the power of god to keep you saved is the same power of god that got you saved in the first place and let me just point this out if you could lose your salvation you would. If I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it a long time ago if it was ultimately up to me. Now, those are four things you should know about salvation. Salvation begins with God's gracious election. Salvation calls for a faith response. uh, Salvation regenerates those who believe. And salvation endures forever. You need to know those things about salvation today. But wouldn't it be sad 
You know, I mean, we, we've given you so much good theological truth over the last several weeks, right? I mean, just what does the Bible say about God and, 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 and creation and, and humanity and the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus and salvation? We've given you so much good information. But wouldn't it be sad if we, if, if we compiled all of this wonderful information but our hearts were not warmed, Right? Because there's more, to, there's more to knowing God than simply information about God. There's an experience with God that leads to something greater and deeper, a relational meaningfulness. That's why I want to give you, just as we start to land this plane this morning, three things you should feel about salvation, okay? Three things you should feel about salvation. Salvation is ultimately not a work that's done in our emotions, our emotions are the shallowest part of our being, and God is not going to do his deepest work in our shallowest part, okay? But at the same time, there, there's, there's something that we should feel when we're handling the deep and profound truths of God. You understand what I'm saying? Right? right? There, there's, there's something we should feel. And, and, if, and if we simply just gave you a theological data dump over the course of two months, but you didn't really just feel what God is doing in your life, we, we will have failed. We will have failed. Uh, Romans 15, 13, look at this. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You talk about three things right there that you should feel about salvation. First of all, there's a joy. I mean, if you're saved, listen... <laughs> There's no better thing than to be saved. There, there's a joy. Now, joy is not ultimately and, and, and fundamentally an emotion, but I will tell you, to know that you're saved and to experience the joy of the Lord, it does something in the human heart, doesn't it? Right? Think about what the Bible says. Look at this. Two scriptures in particular. Psalm 13, 5. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And again, a second one, Isaiah 12, 3. You will, you will with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. It doesn't say, you will with boredom draw water from the wells of salvation. I will tell you, it is incredible that we can take it for granted that we have been saved. We have been saved. I think one of the reasons we take it for granted is we live in Garland County. You know, not because Garland County is heaven on earth or something like that, but it, it's because, as I've shared with you before, there's this Garland County assumption out there. Everybody's saved in Garland County. No, they're not. But because we, we live in a place where it's so common to talk about salvation and, oh, we've been saved, oh, I've been saved, I got saved 30 years ago, whatever. Man, we, we take it for granted, and the joy of being saved is just, eh, there's a joy that should come in knowing that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been regenerated, that you're being made in the image of the, of the Son of God. There should be joy in that. Here's the second thing. The second thing is this, peace. Many times in our culture today, we assume that peace is basically the absence of anxiety, the absence of stress, the absence of, of, of sorrow. And yes, I mean, certainly it is very peaceful not to have those things plaguing your life. But there's something more about peace, and that's the presence of God. I mean, that, you, 
the presence of God in your life when you're saved, when you've been saved, when you've been regenerated, when you've been born again. You, God is in your life. Man, that's, there's a peace about that. No matter what's going on externally, you have that internal peace. Look at the Scripture. Look at what this Bible verse says. Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect, or her, in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And another very famous passage. Philippians 4, be anxious about nothing. Some of you brought anxieties in here this morning. I pray you don't take them out. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a peace for those who've been saved. And here's the last thing. Last thing is this, hope. Last word is hope. You know, when we talk about hope in our culture today, um, we, we tend to think in terms of an, an uncertain anticipation. Man, I really hope it doesn't rain on Saturday because I want to go to the ball game. Or, whew, of course, kids say this, but a lot of times adults say it as well. Man, I really hope I get X for Christmas. You know, whatever. Man, I really want to get, I really hope I get X for Christmas, whatever it is. But in the Bible, hope is not an uncertain anticipation. Hope is a very certain anticipation. Uh, at least in one place in the New Testament, it's called the blessed hope. Look at this. Let me give you this scripture about the blessed hope. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Okay, well, what is the blessed hope, Pastor? The appearing, the return of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. I don't sit around saying, boy, I sure hope Jesus comes back someday. I don't sit around saying, boy, I sure hope I, I might make it to heaven. Right? We know. And because we know, we feel. Here, here's something else we know. Look at this. 1 John 5, 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And one more. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. We know that if this earthly tent in which we dwell should be destroyed, we have a home in heaven not made with human hands. Two things we know that drive how we feel when it comes to hope. One, we know that we can be saved. You don't have to wonder or guess about it. You can know with absolute certainty that you're saved, that you've experienced this salvation. Here's the second thing. We know that we're going to heaven. We, we can know, you can know that, right? I ask you every Sunday, do you know for certain that if you're going to heaven when you die? Some of you sit here week after week, you don't know. You just, you, you don't, you would say, if I were to sit down with you at a coffee shop and ask you the same question, you say, I'm not really sure, Pastor, right? But the Bible says we can know. Now, why does that impact how we feel? When you sit at the funeral home and your mama or your daddy's laid out there, or your sister, your brother, God forbid, one of your children, maybe your grandparent. Theology makes a big difference in that moment, doesn't it? Right? And, and how we feel. Well, I mean, if you don't have what I'm talking about today, what, what do you have at the funeral home? 
you got people telling stories about how, man, the, the, the thing that this guy enjoyed the most in his whole life was riding around on Lake Hamilton in his pontoon boat. I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm so tired of going to people's funerals where that's the best thing that can be said about somebody. That there was no pervasive faith in Jesus. There was nothing about salvation and the truth of, 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 of transformed lives in Jesus. I will tell you, but when I, when I go to a service, and I was at a service two weeks ago, and they were able to talk about this person's faith, I mean legitimately, talk about this person, how much they love the Lord, and it was so obvious. What does that do to your heart? And that, I wasn't even related to the person. But when, when one of your loved ones has stepped off into eternity... And you can say, I know that I will see them again. What, what does that do for you? I'm telling you, there's some things you should feel about salvation. This is not just head knowledge we're dumping on you here at Crossgate Church. We should feel and rejoice to know that we have been saved. Don't you want to be saved? Every week, some of you people sit here week after week after week. Oh, Pastor Phil, in one ear, in one ear out the other. Let's bow. Let's just bow our heads. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.